Let me say that uh, we appreciate the support you give, not just to Michael, though I appreciate it uh, very much. We appreciate the support this church has given to countless students across the years. You know, we'd have empty classrooms were it not for generous brethren like you who are willing to help support the cause of preacher education and sending men forth to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so please know from the bottom of our hearts at Memphis, we love and appreciate you for your assistance in that regard. It means so much. Anyone in here know the shortest verse in the English Bible? And this is uh, certainly well known to some. The shortest verse in the English Bible, John 11:35. right? Jesus wept. Perhaps not as many know the shortest verse in the Greek New Testament. Rejoice evermore. 1 Thessalonians 5 and verse number 16. Shortest verse in the English Bible about weeping. Shortest verse in the Greek New Testament about rejoicing. If you really stop and think about it, our lives can be documented by moments of great joy and moments of great sorrow or weeping. And sometimes we may think that uh, this is the way it is. If you're a Christian, you can't be happy. You can't ever show that you're happy because that would be unspiritual. But may I remind you of something Jesus said in John chapter 15 as we begin this morning. John chapter 15, and notice the statement that Jesus makes in verse 11 of John 15. He tells his apostles, these things have I spoken unto you. Why? Why did you speak to them, Lord? Here's the answer. That my joy, you mean Jesus was joyful? He didn't just walk around with a somber expression all in his face all of the time and, and never, never smiled. My friends, Jesus was very joyful. He says, I want my joy to remain in you. And he says, I want your joy to be what? Full. Now think about who heard these words and then go to 1 John chapter 1 with me and notice that sometime later, after these words were spoken, John the Apostle would write this epistle. And in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 4, he tells us one of the reasons for which he wrote this epistle. Here it is. These things, 1 John 1, 4, these things write we unto you that your joy may be full. Now where had he heard that before? He'd heard the Lord say to him and the other apostles, I want my joy to get into you, I want it to remain in you, and I want you to have a joy that's bubbling over and overflowing. I'm not asking for you to have a scintilla or a shred of joy. I want you to be saturated with joy. I want you to be full with it. And that's impossible, someone says. Brother Clark, you wouldn't be standing there quoting verses like rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice, if you knew what was going on in my life. Someone might say, Brother Clark, you say rejoice, but do you know what I heard this week from my doctor? And by the way, I don't know, and so if this hits home with anyone, please know it's not directed at you personally in any embarrassing sort of way except to comfort Someone might say, for all I know, Brother Clark, this week the doctor told me that it's malignant and that it's aggressive, and I'm concerned. My family's concerned, and you want me to rejoice? You want me to rejoice always, evermore? Well, what about those times 
when people like me have said, I do, and my mate said, I do, and I thought they did, and they did for a while, but now they've left me, and my heart is shattered, and I'm lonely, and I don't know how I'm going to face the future without them. I'm lonely and scared, and you want me to rejoice. Someone might say, have you not seen the latest economic indicators? Do you know people are being laid off who've worked for 25, 35 years, and companies are downsizing, and there are all kinds of uh, problems going on in the world, and you, you want me to rejoice in spite of my economic woes? Someone else could say, Brother Clark, I walked away last week from a gravesite, and there I left my mate of 50-plus years, and my knees buckled as I got halfway back to the limousine, and people had to prop me up and help me get in the car and then help me get out of it. And the dishes have all been returned to the church building now, and the people are not coming by as often and as frequently, and so the house is getting emptier and emptier to me, and I see an empty chair, and I just weep. And I'm supposed to rejoice. Always. My children were raised up to know the Lord. We brought them to services, Brother Clark, every time the doors were open. Bible school, yes. Sunday night, yes. Wednesday night, yes. Vacation Bible school, mark us down. Gospel meeting, we'll be there. Christian camp, we sent them. Did everything we knew how. Even in our home, we'd have devotional times and occasional... uh, discussions of the scriptures and singing and we tried everything we knew how to do we prayed with our children we did everything we knew they've grown up and they've met someone that did not have the same values taught to them when they were growing up and now this person is exerting more influence over our child than our teaching is and they don't go to church anymore or they don't go to a church you can read about in the new testament anymore and our hearts are broken And you want us to rejoice. Brother Clark, if you knew what I was battling personally, you wouldn't stand up there and say rejoice. I'm a miserable mess right now. I'm addicted to pills. I'm addicted to this drug. I'm a slave to alcohol, you name it. And you want me to rejoice when my life is a miserable mess? How can I? Every time the phone rings, I wonder, is it someone about to tell me that my loved one who's fighting for this country overseas has been injured or worse, and I'm supposed to rejoice? I may not have even come close to the baggage you brought with you here today emotionally. I don't know what you've dealt with, what you're presently dealing with. I haven't been briefed or informed But I do know the human condition is pretty much the same wherever you go. And we're all needing moments when we can find a reason to rejoice even in the midst of our pain, correct? I grew up in the generation of Hee Haw. And that was a television program that was on in days gone by. And the lyrics of one of those songs still rings in my memory. Gloom, despair, and agony on me. Deep, dark depression, excessive misery. If it weren't for bad luck, I'd have no luck at all. Gloom, despair, and 
agony on me. And I can tell by the looks on some of your faces, you remember that too. Some of the younger people are going, what? They don't, they don't get it. They've never heard of it. But some of us grew up hearing that. There are some people that live their lives that way. If you don't believe me, just ask them how they're doing. And it's always gloom, despair, and agony on me. It's always deep, dark depression and excessive misery. You know, I have a friend, and I'm not telling you anything I didn't say to his face years ago at the local church where I preached. We had common sports interests. We played golf together some. We loved to watch SportsCenter uh, together. We just enjoyed a lot of common interests. And he was a Christian. And I give him credit. He was... Well versed in the scriptures, he'd memorized sections of verses from the Old Testament that I'm not sure some people knew were in there, and uh, he was very, very eager to invite people to services and often did so. He tried to set up Bible studies all the time, and yet one day he said this to me. He said, why won't anybody ever come to church with me? Why won't anyone ever study the Bible with me? I don't get it. I'm trying and no one's interested. I thought I knew the reason, but I was debating within myself whether I should tell him or not. I'd noticed this about my friend. He would have some moments of joy where he was kind of up and in a good mood, but quite frankly, most of the time he was down in the depths of despondency. He was down in the dumps, as we say, full of despair, and the glass wasn't even close to half full for him He didn't see anything on the bright side. It was negativity, negativity, negativity. And so he's asking me, why doesn't anyone want to come to church with me? Why doesn't anyone want to study the Bible with me? I thought we were good enough friends. I'd venture an answer. I said, let me ask you something. The people that work with you, do they, you think they see you as a genuinely happy person that enjoys their Christianity? that really loves being a Christian, it's the greatest life in the world, and that when they look at you, they say, I want whatever he has. I want some of that. Do you think they think that? And he said, I I don't guess they do. And friends, I'm telling you, the people that you love and want to influence I'm not talking about phoniness. I'm not talking about plastering on some superficial smile on our face that's not genuine or real and pretending to be something that we're not. I'm talking about a a genuine joy that can radiate from us even when life's not going so well. Look at Acts 5. In verse 41, the Bible says that in Acts chapter 5, these apostles had been beaten. And then notice what they are doing in Acts the fifth chapter. Right after their beating, the Bible says in verse 41, they departed from the presence of the council, whining and whimpering and asking God how He could let this happen to them when they'd been so loyal to Him. That's not what your Bible says, is it? If it is, throw it away. It's not the Bible. What does the Bible say? They departed from the presence of the council doing what? Rejoicing? I thought verse 40 said they'd just been beaten, they had. Well, then how could they be rejoicing? Because they were thankful they were counted worthy to suffer shame for His name. And you'll notice they didn't quit preaching in the name of Jesus Christ, Acts 5 and verse 42. And let me ask you, Paul, are you rejoicing? Yes. 
Well, don't you realize where you are when you're writing the book of Philippians? You're in prison, you're under arrest, and you are writing words like rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I'll say it again, he said, rejoice. Paul, do you not know where you are? I have a friend who used to work as a chaplain in a prison system. One of their responsibilities, read the incoming mail. Make sure they're not requesting or sending anything that shouldn't be sent in. And read the outgoing mail. Make sure they're not requesting anything that shouldn't be sent in to be sent in. And so he said in all of the letters from prisoners he'd ever read, he'd never remembered reading anything much like Rejoice, it's great, it's fantastic. It was usually something like, I can't stand these cellmates. The guards are out to get me. The food here is horrible. Negative, 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 negative. How is Paul saying, rejoice in the Lord always, even when you're under arrest? Yes, rejoice. I'm thankful that in Philippians 4 he gave three reasons right there in the text for which you and I can rejoice. Look at verse 3. I entreat thee also, true yoke fellow, help those women which labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and with other my fellow laborers, now watch this part, whose names are in the book of life. And then what's the next word? Rejoice. Is that accidental or intentional? Hold your place here and go to Luke 10. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus had sent out 70 individuals, and verse 17 says, The 70 returned with joy. Now, Luke 10, 17 says their joy is based on what? They said, Lord, even the devils are subject to us through thy name. Jesus said, I know. I saw you exercise the power over Satan. But watch verse 20. Notwithstanding in this rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because... Now this is the Son of God giving you the reason for rejoicing. Rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Put Luke 10.20 and Philippians 4.3 and 4 side by side. Rejoice because your names are written in heaven, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice. You see any similarity and harmony there? Yes. And so here's what I'm here to tell you this morning. If you came here this morning and your name is in the Lamb's book of life, no matter what else is going on in your lives, you can rejoice. In Revelation chapter 20, note the statement here. The great white throne judgment scene that John sees here. He sees men standing before God, verse 11. And then verse 12, I saw the dead stand before God actually, and the books, plural, were opened. And then he says another book, singular, was opened. He tells you that's the book of life. And the dead are judged out of the things written in the books, plural, according to their works. Now, what are these books? One commentator said, in fact, more than one I've seen suggest this. It's the books containing the record of our deeds. But I have an issue with that. On the Day of Judgment is an omnipotent, all-powerful judge going to have to look at you and say, Name, please, and let me look up your record here to see what you've done or haven't done. Friends, the moment I walk up before the judgment seat of Christ, before I walk up the judgment seat of Christ, 
My Lord's going to know my name and know everything I've done without having to consult a book to see it. He knows me. Now, I used to have to write things. Uh, I used to, didn't have to write things down in my younger days. Uh, you could tell me and I'd, I'll remember it, no problem. I've got I've to write it down now, but I've got a new problem. I lose the slip of paper I wrote it down on. Anyone else in here identify with this? So my memory is bad and I can't remember where I wrote things down. God doesn't have to write things down to remember them. But So what would these books possibly be? Well, what did Jesus say in John 12, 48? He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my sayings hath one that judgeth him. The word that I have spoken shall judge him in the last day. Where would you and I go to find the words that Christ has spoken? In the books. Of Holy Scripture, that's what's going to measure my life and determine whether I'm in the book of life is how I've lived according to what the books of Holy Scripture say. And here's why I want you to go to Revelation 20 and look at verse 15. What happens if my name is not in the Lamb's book of life? In Revelation 20, here's the statement in verse number 15. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So when I thought this was a sermon on rejoicing and now you've got hellfire in the midst of it, look, flip it. If my name is in the book of life, then I won't be cast into a lake of fire. In fact, Revelation 3 is what my passage is going to be on the day of judgment. Verse 5, here's the statement. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment. I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. But rather, I'll confess his name before my father and before his angels. So I don't have to stand before God on the day of judgment with my name blotted out. I can have my name still there. By the way, Brother Guy in Woods, still sorely missed by many who knew of his great work. It's sad that a younger generation has not been exposed perhaps as much to some of the great writing and study that he did. One thing I heard him say on more than one occasion as I've listened to recordings of his sermons is there are 2,500 passages in the Bible which show you that you could lose your salvation if you choose to. 2,500. How many would you have to have to show that you could lose your salvation? One would be enough, right? Let me tell you why I gravitate to this one. Maybe you've run into this. You're studying with someone and you tell them about this wicked person who's supposedly been saved, and you talk to them about this person and their salvation, and you say, now, you're telling me they're once saved, always saved, that if they've once been saved, they can live any way they want to and still be saved? And the usual statement that you'll hear back to that is, well, if they live that way, that just proves what? They were never really saved to begin with. You heard this? You know, Revelation 3.5 is helpful to me in discussing that with someone because think, just reason with me. In order for a name to be blotted out of the book of life, what? It would first have to be in there. I'd like to know who put it there. Are you telling me that God put it there when it didn't belong there? You see, I'm not in the business of uh, taking names out and putting names in. You aren't either. That's God's domain. So if a name ever got into the book of life, it got there how? Because God put it there. 
If it ever is blotted out after that, it's not God admitting He made a mistake. Oops, I shouldn't have put their name in. I guess after all, that's blasphemy. Friends, I'm telling you, if their name in the book of life equals salvation, what would blotting their name out of the book of life equal? Loss of salvation. But here's the good news. You don't have to have that happen to you. If you overcome, Brother Johnny Ramsey was fond of saying in his preaching life, that the, the message of the book of Revelation is that if you overcome, you may come over and live with me. And so there's a reason to rejoice if my name's in the book of life because I get to go live with God. Now, when I came up out of a watery grave of baptism, just like the eunuch, I went on my way doing... What did the eunuch do, by the way, uh, class, when Acts 8 says he went on his way doing what? Rejoicing. Now, did you do the same thing when you came up out of that water? you remember the day you were baptized? How did you feel? You went on your way rejoicing. You're now in a covenant relationship with God. Everything is so sweet. But as I mentioned last hour, Demas also went on his way rejoicing. But then worldly things came in and crowded God out. And what happened to Demas? He fell in love with the world. And what happened to David, King David? You remember, things were going so well, and then he saw Bathsheba, and then he acted on what he saw, and then he conspired to murder her husband so that he wouldn't figure out that the baby she was carrying was some other man's. David didn't want to be caught. And then Nathan the prophet confronts him and says, Thou art the man, and... Nathan the prophet tells David this, and then David says this. Remember this phrase, restore unto me. The, what did David ask God to restore to him? Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. I'm not accusing, I'm just asking. And maybe this is a question better asked for those who are here for worship, but not for Bible class. But friends, it's possible even those who are in a Bible class who stay the extra hour and go the extra mile may need this word as well. Let me ask you a question. Is it possible that the joy you once had when you were baptized has now been lost and needs to be restored? Do you still have the joy of your salvation? Or are you sitting in a church building going through the motions of acting like a Christian but throughout the week, you're really not acting like a Christian. You remember Isaiah had to confront people of his day because, oh, they were still showing up for worship, bringing their sacrifices. Isaiah 1, and God says, I'm up to here with your sacrifices because you're not even really trying to do well. You need to learn to do well. You need to change your lives. And when you make many prayers, I'm not going to listen to you because you're not even really trying. To live for me. And so it's not enough to be in an assembly. I need to measure my life not by whether I've shown up for all the services of the church. That's part of the test, but it's not all of it. Am I living from Monday through Saturday the same way I act like I'm living on Sunday? I'm just asking. Or is sin robbing you of your joy? My dad used to say, and I know it wasn't original with him, but I've repeated it many times. Some people have just enough Christianity to make themselves miserable. 
They know what is right. They know what they ought to be doing. They know they're not doing it. And so they walk around miserable because they know too much and know that they're not living up to what they know. To whom much is given, much is required. And I tell you, the joy you want to hear is, you want to receive is this joy right here. Matthew 25, 21. Here it is. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a few things. I'll make thee ruler over many things. And then what? Enter thou into what? The joy of thy Lord. I want to go from the joy that I had after I was baptized to the joy of going to heaven and hearing those sweet words, come on in and enjoy this joy together. Now, so if my name's in the book of life, that's one. Here's the second of three. It's verse 5. And it might seem to be a, a tiny little text that doesn't have all that much meaning, but it really does. In Philippians chapter 4 and verse 5, Let your moderation be known unto all men, and then this, the Lord is at hand. What does that mean? One commentator said, Paul erroneously thought the second coming of the Lord was about to happen. That's not what Paul meant by this statement. He wrote by inspiration of the Spirit, and the Spirit would not have uh, superintended his writing to say something that wasn't true. So I know Paul is saying something else here when he says the Lord is at hand. How many of you can remember growing up and being sick at home and mama would come in and she'd bring your chicken noodle soup or whatever it is that she wanted to put down your gullet to make you better and she'd give you the castor oil or whatever magic cure that she thought was the best for you and she'd tuck you in your bed as snug as a bug in a rug we used to say and then she'd say as she's getting ready to leave, now honey, if you need anything at all, What? I'm right here. I'm nearby. That comforted me. My mom's close by. What does the Bible say in Matthew 28? I will never leave you nor forsake you is what Hebrews says. What's Matthew 28, 20 say? Lo, I'm with you all. Now put these two. Rejoice in the Lord always. Philippians 4, 4. Matthew 28, 20. Lo, I'm with you always. The reason I can rejoice always is because He's with me always. He will never leave me nor forsake me. That's why that Footprints poem, even though it's fictional, still resonates in our hearts. The story about the man that looks over the sands of time. His footprints are next to another pair of footprints, those of the Lord. But during the darkest, most difficult times of his life, there's only one set of footprints. He assumes the Lord abandoned him during those times. And you remember the poem is written in such a fashion as to say, No, I didn't abandon you, I carried you. How many times have you heard a widow say something like, If it hadn't been for the Lord and the Lord's people, I couldn't have made it. And I know that you all have gone through some things here that, just like any congregation, if it hadn't been for the Lord being with you and the brethren being with you, you couldn't have made it. I love uh, to remember back to a statement that I read in John chapter 16. Would you notice it with me here in John chapter 16, verse 20? Jesus Christ says this, Verily, verily, I say unto you, you shall weep and lament. But the world shall rejoice. You shall be sorrowful. Again, dating myself, I remember 
Growing up a country song, I beg your pardon, I never promised you a rose garden. You remember that one? Well, in this particular passage, the Lord basically says, look, I never told you that everything would always be coming up roses for you if you followed me. I, truth be told, there are times you're going to weep and lament and the world's going to be rejoicing. We named our son Michael after a young man named Michael Savage, not the radio personality named Michael Savage, but a, a young man in Knoxville, Tennessee named Mike Savage. Not long after I started working there with that church in Knoxville, we were able to restore Mike and his brother Jeff to the Lord's cause. Sometime later, Mike came to me and he said, got two words for you, getting married. And I studied with his fiancée and we baptized her. And so here he was, life was good. And then he got the word from the doctor, we think it's just an infection, no worries. Four months later, they said, it wasn't an infection, it cancer, but you're young, and this particular kind of cancer has a, a pretty high cure rate, but they'd waited so long to diagnose it, they were too far behind, and I watched Mike Savage wither away and die, and two years after I preached his wedding, I preached his funeral, and I remember during that time, Howard Stern had just gotten him a hundred million dollar plus contract to be on satellite radio to talk filthy and to say whatever he wanted to say without FCC fines or penalties uh, being like they were on other radio stations. He could, for pay radio, he could say more than he'd said on the public radio. And so he was high and uh, they made a movie about him. And, oh, he was, it, it used to get all over me to see this man not even trying to do right and here's a young man that's trying to do right, and he gets cancer, and he's dying to leave the planet when this man is staying on the planet to spread his filth. What is wrong with this picture? And I came across this verse right here in John 16. You will weep and lament, and the world shall rejoice. You shall be sorrowful, but your sorrow shall be turned into joy. Rich man and Lazarus again. The rich man's joy became sorrow. Lazarus' sorrow became joy. What a contrast after this life is over. And my friends, I'm so thankful that I read in verse number 21 and 22, a woman when she's in travail has sorrow because her hours come. But as soon as she's delivered of the child, she remembers no more the anguish for joy that a man is born into the world. Now, therefore, you have sorrow, but I will see you again, and your heart shall rejoice, and this joy no man takes from you. What a marvelous thing to know he's by my side. Have you ever gone to one of these caverns where they get you down into the deepest part of the cavern, and what do they like to do? Turn out the lights, right? When they did this, our oldest child was just a toddler, and he wasn't all that sure of his footing at that point in time anyway, and you can imagine in a strange place, suddenly the lights go out, and he's plunged into thick darkness, and he started wailing and shrieking. It wasn't hard to find him. Just follow the piercing sound and reach, and he'll be there, and sure enough, I pick him up, and I'm patting him on the back, and it's still dark. 
And he's calming down. He's not crying nearly as hard. He's starting to soften his whimper. Well, why is he not shrieking as much as he was? The conditions haven't changed. It's still dark. Oh, but the conditions had changed. He felt safe in his father's arms, correct? And he felt as long as I was there with him that nothing bad could happen to him. I would protect him. And you know, through many a dark hour, my father has figuratively speaking held me in his arms, so to speak, providentially. And helped me through some very difficult times. What about you? I'm so grateful that the Lord is near. And finally, I'm grateful that the Lord will hear. Verse 6, be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your request be made known unto God. You realize what that's saying? I can... I cannot take my phone and call the White House or world leaders or congressional leaders and get them on my phone at a moment's notice. Maybe you have such connections. Most of us don't. I can't get a hold of people that are in places of influence and power just because I have a notion to want to talk to them. I can call the White House today and say, could you get the president on the line, please? Who's this? Uh, B.J. Clark? Who? Who? Don't know you? Friends, I've got something much better than I can talk to God right now. Through Christ, I can talk to God and will He hear me? He will hear me. That's why I don't have to be full of anxiety about anything because He is there to always be there for me. This uh, CEO was swamped and he said to his secretary, Hold my calls. Cancel my appointments for the day. I have got to complete this project. And so she does so. She holds his calls and cancels his appointments. One man calls and says, I'd really like to talk to him. Well, I'm sorry he's not available. When would be the best time to reschedule the call? I come by to see him. Well, he's not available. When would be a good time for you to come back? Then a tiny knock at the door. He knows that knock. He bolts out of his chair. He goes to open the door, and there he sees him with his arms up like this, his three-year-old son. Pick me up, Daddy. He picks up that boy, and he hugs him tight and kisses him with soft fatherly kisses on his cheek, squeezes him and says, I love you, son. I love you so much. Now, you tell me how a three-year-old could get to a man that multi-millionaires and CEO bigwigs couldn't get to. How did he do that? He's only three. You know how. Sonship. That's my child. And I'm telling you, don't devalue what it means to be a child of God. If you came here today and your heart is burdened with a heavy load... And you know that your name's in the Lamb's book of life. And you know that the Lord is near. And you know that the Lord will hear. Friends, I'm telling you, you can rejoice no matter what else is going on in your world. But if you came here today and your name's not in the Lamb's book of life, you may leave this place and have moments of joy, but they will be short-lived. After this world, you will have sorrow. 
And I'm begging you not to let that happen. I want you to please, as this invitation song is about to be sung, I want you to evaluate whether you're in the book of life, whether your name used to be there but is in danger of being blotted out because of your disobedience and apostasy. I I hope and pray that you will fix that today. And you will have the best rest of the day you've had in a long time if you know that you're right with God no matter what happens. We love your soul, and if you need to become a Christian and be entered into the Lamb's Book of Life by hearing, believing, repenting, confessing, and being baptized for the remission of sins, we can do that. We don't mind taking the time to do that. I'll be glad to delay my physical meal to watch you participate in something that wonderful and special. Wouldn't that be wonderful? If you're already a child of God but not acting like it, if you're a prodigal, come back and we'll rejoice just like they did when the prodigal returned. We love you. Let's rejoice together as together we stand and sing. Won't you please?